0: To the Good Beans, a wholesome, silly, nerdy fancast on media and other fun stuff that just makes me, your regular millennial, genuinely happy. I'm your host, Faulty Paragon, a fanfiction author and just artsy creator in general. Um, this is going to be the second episode. Uh, Thank you so much for those of you who listened to the first episode and left some comments or messaged me about it. It's been really cool to see what you think of the first episode and of this format. For this second episode, what are we going to discuss? We are going to be discussing another one of my favorite video games of all time. Uh, We are going to be discussing Xenoblade Chronicles. So Xenoblade Chronicles is my favorite game of all time, without a doubt. I adore it so much there's so much to love about it so buckle up we're gonna get going um so What is Xenoblade Chronicles? It was a game that was originally released I believe in 2010 for the Nintendo Wii and since then has been ported to the Nintendo 3DS and the Switch. I I played the original Wii version but I only played it recently in the last I think 4 years so it was the game that was able to usurp Kingdom Hearts 2 as my favourite back when I played it a few years ago. So what is this game about? Let's Give a brief summary of the story of the game. So, um, essentially, the story takes place on a planet that is entirely covered by water until one day two giant titans emerge from the water. They are called the Bionis and the Mechonis, and these two titans fight. For a long time, they war until eventually they manage to strike each other down and they die with their blades embedded into the bodies of one another, holding each other up upright in battle forever so what happens when you have two titans that reach up to the upper limits of the atmosphere is that weather patterns begin to occur carrying you know organisms from the water and depositing them onto the land onto the bodies of these titans and these two titans become the land masses which uh, flourish with life and biodiversity in this world um so over millennia, the diversification of species happens, and evolution happens, and um, these two titans become the homes of millions upon millions of species. Uh, for sentient races, um, at least at the start of the game, what we know is on the Mecon- on the, Meconis, the sentient race is known as the Mechon. Um, although there's a debate at the beginning as to whether they are really sentient or not. And on the Bionis, you have, uh, the Homs, who are essentially, um, he- humans. You have the High Entia, who are kind of, like, the elves of this game. And you have the Nupon, who are, like, the mascot characters. They're essentially, like, cutesy furbies who, like, when they speak common- like, the common tongue, they make everything really cutesy. It's- it's interesting. We'll talk about the Nupon later. Um, but yeah, in the setting of the story, essentially there's a huge battle between the Mechon and the humans, the Homs, because the Homs live low enough on the Bionis for the Mechon to be able to reach with their current, you know, equipment and armor and whatnot. So all the Homs colonies are wiped out, essentially, because Homs can't fight back against the Mechon, they can't pierce Mechon armor, um, until, um, all the colonies are wiped out except for Colony 6 and Colony 9. However, a year before the start of the game, the Homs realize that they can use this ancient sword known as the Monado um, to destroy Mechon armor, and that it's actually able to cut through Mechon armor. However, only one person can use it. It's a young man named Dunban, um, and he comes from Colony 9, but he wields it in battle and in what ends up being known as the Battle at Sword Valley, he, Dunban is able to pretty much single-handedly shut down the Mechon forces and restore peace. The price to pay is the use of his arm. So it destroys the nerve endings in his arm, so he becomes paralyzed with that arm. But they have a year of peace. The protagonist of the game is named Shulk. He is a young man in Colony 9 who is kind of Dunban's little adoptive brother, since Shulk is childhood friends and the love interest of Dunban's little sister Fiora. Shulk is not a fighter. He's a researcher, and he researches the Monado, and he loves doing that. But suddenly, one day, the Mechon attack Colony 9 after that year of peace, and they're stronger than ever, so they destroy much of the colony and they kill a ton of people, including Fiora, um, Dunban's little sister, and Shulk's love interest. During this attack on Colony 9, Shulk finds out that he's actually able to wield the Monado without repercussions, unlike Dunban, and he can use it to the fullest. So he fights them off, but the deaths have already happened, and Fiora is already gone, and he's absolutely heartbroken. So eventually, he and his best friend Ryan decide to go to the Mechonis and destroy the Mechon base to prevent any more needless deaths. That's kind of their plan. Um, However, on the way, they need to travel from the Shin of the Bionis all the way to the um, Mechonis, and so that's going to take a decent amount of time to get there. One thing that I want to highlight here is that there isn't actually any bullshit that we have to endure. Like, no one gets into dramatic, petty arguments and fights. There's nothing from like Persona 5, for example, where there's all of these petty little arguments between Morgana and Ryuji, um, and there's no arguments just because the plot says so. The only time they actually ever get into a fight is because Ryan does something really, really dumb, and it ends up tossing them down into a trap door. But the anger that everyone experiences and that everyone very rightfully projects Fades in about a minute because then everyone realizes, all right, well, time to just problem solve. There's no point getting angry about this. So they start to solve the issue like adults, and he promises not to do it again, and there's no more issue. So, for moving on to the next point, Um, One thing that I think is really important to highlight here is the way that they actually build the world itself. So, I mentioned before that you have to go over the bodies of the titans. And when you enter any new place, you are given a little graphic to show where on the bodies of these two titans you are currently located. Which is a really good way to orient yourself. However, an even better way to orient yourself is just looking around. They do an absolutely phenomenal job. Uh, in making sure that you always feel like you are situated in a real living space. One of my favorite examples of this is when you go to the Gar Plains. The Gar Plains is the, I guess, third major area that you actually ever go to uh, within the storyline. And when you enter the Gar Plains, we'll touch on that moment more later, there comes a moment where you see this vast area spread out before you and you might just think, okay, this is a really cool area. I'm going to have a lot of fun exploring this, but then you look up and you don't see the blue sky. What you see is a giant sword overhead and you realize, oh, I'm not just on the lower thigh in general. I'm really situated just up off the kneecap, and I'm going to be climbing up towards the Bionis' waist. You can see the Mekonis' sword embedded in the Bionis' chest above you. Everywhere you go, when you go to Aerith Sea, you can see the head of the, you can see the back of the head of the Bionis, and you can see the eyes of the Mechonis glowing in the distance. Everywhere you go, you are constantly so reminded of where you are situated within this world when you go to valak mountain it gives me such bad vertigo because you're not on a flat plane you're going down the arm of this creature you start off at the shoulder and you go all the way down its arm until you reach this embedded sword You can travel through all of the grooves on the sword as well. One of my favorite moments like this, when you really understand where you're situated in the world is when you end up on the fallen arm of the Mechonis. During the battle between the two titans, uh, the Mechonis gets its arm cut off and it falls into the water. So, there comes a point in the story where you wash up on shore and you don't know where you are and you're very disoriented. And so when I first got there, I had no idea where I was. I thought I was on its foot maybe, wasn't really sure where I was going, until I started heading towards this rising peak and I was like, okay, so maybe this is an ankle, but I still don't see the rest of the Titan in the distance, so I'm not sure where I'm going. I exited this tunnel and ended up on an outlook and when I looked into the distance there were five digits curled slightly rising to the heavens and that was when I realized that the central plane that I was looking at was the palm and those five digits were the curled fingers of the cutoff arm like that kind of world design is so interesting and is so engaging and it's so efficient in situating you exactly where you need to be in order to really appreciate the world itself another really really engaging moment within the actual world design itself was when i first got to satoral marsh so for context this marsh is located around the hips and the waist of the bionis so it is, I want to say, the sixth area that you kind of get to, um, when you are first playing the game. When you first get there, it's probably during the day. For me, it was during the day. And it was this gray and brown, harsh, bleak swamp. It was a marshland. And I was a little underleveled, and I started getting my shit absolutely rocked. I was not ready for this at all. I first played this game when I was in university, so... I was completely getting destroyed, and I had had a really long day of classes, and I was really upset. And so I was being harassed by this one monster, and it wouldn't leave me alone, and I was extremely tired. And then the night fell, and everything changed. Because when you go to Satoral Marsh at nighttime, that is when they discuss ether. So, ether is the building block of all organic life within this world so ether in this marshland is condensed and it accumulates over the course of the day but at night it doesn't have anywhere to go so what happens is it actually is all released into the air into these beautiful shimmering light forms as light energy what that ends up causing is this incredible effect where the trees and the water and the swamps and the the waterfalls everything glows and almost bioluminescent light. It is absolutely breathtaking. The music shifts and then all of these colors emerge and fill this entire swamp with this gentle glow. It was so soothing and it was so calming, but it also was so immersive when I realized just what was going on. Another thing to really important to note when, you know, you Get to this kind of turning point in the game where you really understand how fleshed out this world is, is when you realize just how much the ecosystem changes. So during the day, all of the predators were extremely aggressive, they were all trying to hurt you. But at night, you get for context, you enter this area maybe level 22, 23, probably. I think that's where I entered it. I don't really remember. But you see the moment the night falls, you will see these giant lion-like creatures, which are all level 80, level 90, somewhere between there. They're all incredibly powerful, and yet they don't care about you. They don't care about you at all, unless if you attack them. And there's all of these creatures which change and shift as, you know, the diurnal cycle continues and so to see actual ecosystems and actual interactions between other monsters and not just you creates this world that makes you feel like you're a part of it rather than being um, just the protagonist of the story and I really really appreciate that immersion I really appreciate being able to see how everything changes but it's not about you Um, so that's something that was really cool Another way that ether is put into really good effect here are with the telethia. And we'll come back to the telethia later. But essentially, they are these giant creatures that consume ether. And we can see the environmental impacts of high and low ether concentrations in an area thanks to telethia. When we see places of um, the Bionis, which are completely dead and gray and lifeless, we can see that it's likely because of ether content or lack thereof, because a Telethia has come and consumed all of the ether in an area, which I find absolutely fascinating because these creatures will consume and consume and consume until they can no longer contain any more power and they essentially explode. So it's it's really interesting to see their impact on the environment. One thing that I do want to talk about, and I, I will touch on this a bit more later, but I want to talk about mascot characters done right because the Nopon are the mascot characters here and every other thing I've ever played makes mascot characters these idiots or they're very cutesy or they don't have much value but in here we can see that they have incredible value because they're incredibly intelligent they're intelligent and capable and hardworking. they're incredibly inventive very resourceful they are the best entrepreneurs and they have this worldwide marketing network it's honestly fascinating um they are the best at scheming they're the best at solving problems they're so intelligent the reason why they still work as a mascot character is because um they have their own language but when they translate that to the common tongue apparently it ends up leaving a lot of cutesy traits and ticks in their um in their use of the common tongue and so that's why they appear to the player as very cutesy and very innocent and very you know out of focus while they're actually really capable and i adore that juxtaposition to see these creatures which normally people would infantilize actually being you know some of the most intelligent and most um creative and most um ingenious characters within the whole story, both for protagonists and for side characters. Okay, Uh, next point on my list is the soundtrack. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. It is my favorite. It probably is my favorite soundtrack. Very close tied up there with Legend of Dragoon. Um, So the soundtrack of this. Oh my goodness. Okay, there's too many things that are amazing, so I'm just going to talk before. The first one I'm gonna talk about is the Gar Plains. So the Gar Plains, as I said, it was the third area that you visit. And before you get to the Gar Plains, you are very much enclosed in a safe, small area up till that point. You're in Colony 9 when the game starts, which is, you know, quite big honestly and it gives you a really good taste of all the different things you're going to see throughout the game then you end up in tephra cave and you work your way up through the kneecap of the bionis until you end up atop the kneecap and you are ready to move up the bionis thigh and the bionis thigh is the gar Plains. and so what you need to imagine is you know you're hearing this calmer music. You're walking through this canyon. The path is very small with very tall cliff sides surrounding you on either side. And then you step out and the world opens up into this plethora, the sea of green and wildlife and blue sky stretching off into the distance. You look up and you see the Mechonis' sword embedded in the chest situating you upon this world. Left and right you see these incredible structures and in the distance you can see the terrain doing these incredible things. Um, Off in the distance you can see a huge lake. There's this giant level like 81 thing wandering this field trying to rock you your shit it's such a cool experience and this song really underlies that sense of adventure that is properly beginning the moment you step out into this field so when you yeah and it's just this incredible song that's so fast-paced and is so moving and it just gets you so pumped up to explore every nook and cranny of this place that is going to kill you so many times even if you just end up following the main track you're going to die just because you're gonna intercept casually a field of like level 70 things and you're like I'm level 12 please don't do this to me it's very good (laughs) I really love it another song that's really good is uh snowy valak mountain at night so the cool thing about this game is that all the music switches between the day and the night right and so the night theme for Valak Mountain, which is the which is the shoulder and the arm of the Bionis, is that the night theme is very different. During the day there's a lot of blizzards and snowstorms um, that render you pretty much snowblind. It's very hard to see during the daytime, but at night the storms always die. And then as i said with you know in satoral marsh where the ether condenses during the day and is released as light energy at night in Valak mountain because the concentration of water ether is so pure essentially they form these giant crystals and at night these crystals glow and send these giant beams of warm yellow light into the sky so it's filled with a thousand beacons and it's beautiful with this incredibly melancholy music in the background it sets the tone perfectly. I think it is a really good way to demonstrate the solitude portrayed by not only the environment, but also when you think of the wildlife that's there. Oftentimes you see enemies and you know wildlife walking around in little packs. You know, anytime you see a creature on its own, it runs after the others. It desperately tries to catch something else because you can't survive on your own in such a harsh environment. And this music provides that sense of just complete solitude that I really adore. Um, I may have cried the moment I heard this song. It was just so different from the daytime theme and it really does such a good job of shifting that tone. Um, the next song on my list is Engage the Enemy. It is one of my favorite songs of all time it is just (laughs) i don't have anything cool to say it plays every single time you're going to be going through a very emotional moment it first plays during the main inciting incident and it just does such a phenomenal job of setting the tone it is it's so dumb It's this incredibly intense song, but it starts off with this really ripping electric guitar riff that suddenly goes into this very aggressive, like, clumsy piano solo that ends up going into this chorale. Like, it's just, it's bafflingly written. I adore every bit of it. It makes me so hype. I want to marry the song. I need you to play it at my funeral, play it at my wedding, play it as my children are born. I don't care. Just, and... embedded into my bones it's such a good song and i love it so much because you hear it and you're like well time to fight let's go let's fight i'm gonna take you down it's just such a good song engage the enemy but the last song i have on my list is the Field. and so to explain why i love this one so much i kind of need to give you a little bit of context so The meconis and the creatures of the Mekonis, the Mekon, are set up as these mindless monsters that are just trying to kill. The meconis is the villain. That's what we're told. And massive spoilers, but that's not exactly the full story. So before you get to the meconis, you end up entering the Mekon base. And the Mekon base is full of neon green... Ooze, like this ether that's been contaminated and poisoned and it looks sickly, it looks unnatural, it looks unsafe, it doesn't feel organic in the slightest. So when you're in that military base is pristine and all chrome and silver and with this this goo running through it that's feeding this toxic ether to them because that's what they use to survive. And so when I went to the Meconist for the first time, I thought that this was going to be my experience as well. It was going to be callous and cold. It was going to be full of monsters that have no emotion that the entire place was going to be full of these, these green acidic pools of ether that looks like they could kill you though, if you fall into them, instead we get this really long rocky tunnel to enter. And the song begins and it's a very slow creeping build as you go through this very grey and grim tunnel. And I was expecting when I first went in there that it was going to be and completely militaristic, that it was going to be ugly and dark and lifeless and, you know, full of automatons, the way because the Mechon are really presented as they are machines, you know. But then you go inside and the tunnel opens up. And the music flourishes into this breathtaking beautiful synth piece that just dances and it moves in time with this beautiful rose gold interior that is absolutely breathtaking and the whole place isn't dead and cold like you would expect instead it it thrums with this vibrant life and energy and it makes you realize that each piece of clockwork adds to the life of the mecanus itself it isn't something that's ugly and foreign and dangerous. It was beautiful and worth exploring and wor- worth giving a chance to. And I think that when I heard that soaring synth piece that was absolutely breathtaking, that was the first time I really realized that my joking prediction that I had made early on, that maybe the Bionis is the bad guy and that maybe the McConus isn't actually, you know, the villain here, was correct. Because there was a purity in the way that the Maconis existed as an isolated location in itself. And it wasn't this, you know, ugly, uncomfortable thing like the Bionis had been when we had gone inside of it. But yeah, Maconis Field, it really adds that layer of beauty that I would never have expected from the Maconis. And I think that song does a lovely job of reflecting and enhancing That sentiment, which is something that I can't really say for most soundtracks. I feel like most soundtracks, when they're good, they manage to match up with the location. So, to add that extra layer of wonder is something that I think is really incredible and needs to be praised. Okay, so let's move on to the characters. So, the protagonist is fine. He's cool. He is a protagonist. He's not a hero. I do really like how he is quite flawed and clumsy and awkward, he's loyal to a fault, he is a good guy, like he's genuinely just a good kid, and I really like that. Yeah, he's not annoying at all. I I appreciate his character quite a bit. He's very bright-eyed and very nerdy, and he's very much just a good little research boy. (laughs) Okay, so there are about five people who I want to highlight. The first one is Ricky. So Ricky is the mascot character of the party. He is a Nopon. He is cutesy and idiotic, but he has so much depth that I don't really think I've ever seen in a traditional mascot character. He is introduced as as, as this idiot who acts like a little kid, with all of the affectations of his race, which is you know inherently cutesy to us, the audience, for reasons that I've already explained. But in reality, Ricky is actually this 40-year-old man with like 11 kids and a wife waiting for him back home. And the only reason he joined this adventure is because the village said that if he joins them, they'll feed his wife and kids. And because he's such a layabout, like he's such a deadweight, that he doesn't know how to hold down a job. And so he's like, okay, please feed my wife and kids. Like what? That's, it's so random and I adore it so much. But what really makes me love this character so much is that he's so much more than this hungry little gremlin that he's portrayed as, like in the party for mechanic-wise, he's genuinely useful as a tank of all things, which is weird considering how you would think he would be, you know, a healer or something. But he's really good as a tank and for like debuffs and buffs. Um, As a character, he's actually really, really intuitive. He's able to offer a lot of advice to Dunvin, who is otherwise their most mature character, So I think that's really, really fascinating Um, because Dunben acts like the old wise man for pretty much the entire game, even though he realistically is only 27, I believe he's 27 years old, but Ricky is always able to give him advice. And then we have my favorite moment with Ricky. So there's this one heart to heart that made me go from liking Ricky to absolutely adoring him beyond compare. So, first off, what is a heart-to-heart? In this game, a heart-to-heart is essentially a special moment where two characters can have a private conversation if they have a strong enough relationship with one another. So that is marked by a chart with uh, these colored hearts um, connecting different characters to one another. And so it shows whether these characters consider each other strangers or, you know, all the way to blood brothers, essentially. So at the top of one of the fingers of that fallen arm of the Maconis, there is a secret location and there is a heart to heart there between Ricky and Shulk. So this conversation that is completely optional, you don't need to see it, but I just happened to find it by accident and I had enough hearts for it. I think you need to have max hearts. And so I had already been there. So, um, I, you know, chose to see it. And this heart-to-heart is essentially a conversation between Ricky and Shulk about how Ricky feels, thinking he can see his home of Magna Forest if he looks up at the Bionis from where they are at on the fallen arm. So he talks about how he cannot wait to go home to see his wife and his 11 kids. And so when he asks Shulk who, like who is waiting for him back at home in Colony 9, Shulk explains how he's an orphan and how the three people who love him, you know, Dunban and his best friend, Ryan and his love interest, Fiora, they're already there with them in the party. And so, and Shulk doesn't have parents. So there's no one waiting for him in Colony 9. Colony 9 is his home, but the people, who he calls family, are with him right now. So Ricky says, oh, well that's interesting. And he just thinks for a while, and then finally says, okay, I'll be your dad. And Shalk has no idea what he's saying, but he says, no, I'll be your dad, and you'll be my kid, and then you'll have a mom and so many brothers and sisters who want to see you smile. And oh god, I'm like tearing up thinking about it because when I saw the moment, I just broke down. It was so sweet because Shalk is so taken aback and he's so stunned and he's so grateful that someone would open up their home to him and so openly welcome him into their arms. And I'm just sitting here like weeping because how sweet is that? Like, How do you top something that's so wholesome and lovely and how can you possibly manage- like, match the tenderness of this moment of someone saying, all right, small child, you do not have a home. I will give you a home. <laughs> it's so wonderful, and he has so much empathy that I think people skip over, and so I really need to highlight Ricky. Like, shout out to him. The next two characters that I want to talk about are, like, together. Um, they kind of come as a package deal. So they're Callian and Melia, the crown prince and princess of the High Entia race. So first off, Melia is like a kick-ass character. She is like a Sundere done right. She's prickly because of her station and her upbringing. But she's also incredibly humble and she isn't a dick at all. And she's so genuinely caring towards her subordinates and towards her people. She's very cute and innocent. And she's incredibly genuine in her feelings towards Shulk as well when she ends up realizing that she is in love with him. Um, And even when she realizes that Shulk is in love with Fiora, She doesn't try to be this terrible third party to win his heart, she just says, you know, we're good allies and that's good enough, and I'll always support him and I'm grateful to have him as a friend. And she's not here to cause drama, and that's just so refreshing, (laughs) like, bless her, I love it. And then there's her standing strong against those who aren't happy with the idea of being mixed race, Um, so speaking of that, let's talk genetics so this is really big spoilers for this whole story so the thing with melia is that she is high entia she's the heir to the to the throne she is going to be the next empress um and the high entia are once again like these very technologically advanced elves so the thing with the high entia is that they essentially have a dormant gene cascade that when triggered by epigenetic factors such as Going above a specific point in the atmosphere, um, or uh, experiencing a stimulus provided from the bionis in its scream and whatnot. Like these certain epigenetic factors that can trigger these gene cascades, um, they cause severe mutations that turn the hyentia into those monsters called the telethia. And those are the monsters that will essentially consume so much living, organic, ether-based matter that they will explode because they do not have any um, consciousness that renders them um, the ability to stop consuming ether. So the Telethia and the Hyentia were essentially a failsafe created by the Bionis itself to ensure that every time this the Bionis, as a god, as a creature, faded from the collective consciousness of his people he could activate the telethia he could activate this gene cascade mutate all of the hyentia and cause them to wipe out all the species which exist on the bionis so that he can start anew as a god worshipped by these sentient creatures which he would put back on the planet or i should say on his being and it's incredibly messed up So the Hyentia figured this out, and so they've been selectively breeding their heirs by crossbreeding with humans in order to ensure that this gene cascade is removed through recombination and luck and selective breeding and whatnot. So then the next time the Bionis decides to kill everyone, at least the heir to the throne of the Hyentia will survive and their culture and their will shall not die based on the whims of a forgotten god. So, they always choose the heir who has the least chance to transform into a telethia should the Bionis decide to reset society. It's just, it's Buckwild. And so, Melia is actually the younger child and she is half human, she's half Hom, and she does not have this gene cascade. So, she is chosen as the heir over her brother because she will survive. So, Fucking shout out to Callian just for being a cute big brother who loves his little sister and makes sure that she's safe. He is not jealous. He's actually very understanding that she is going to be the Empress for the best reason possible. And he's such a good man and I adore his characterization because I hate sibling rivalries. I, I understand why they're so popular and why they can lead to such good drama, but he is such a good older sibling to her, and for that, like, we need to give him major shoutouts because he's wonderful. Um, okay, let's go to Mumkar. Mumkar is a solid villain. He is one of the kind of main villains, spoiler alert. Um, he gives me solid bat vibes, but in kind of a less cool way, but also like, still, he's still quite solid and insidious by playing the role of Metal Face um the metal face reveal when it happens is actually really really rad when you realize who metal face is and that this horrifying looking mechon that's been harassing you all this time that has a face and can talk is actually this person who used to be your ally it's very very cool I do wish he had a cooler death sequence, but I can't help but love him because each time we see him, one, he's so excessive, and two, um, they play Engage the Enemy, like, pretty much every time, and it's so good because I get so excited. Um, yeah, and the design of Metal Face is genuinely really cool, even if I don't like Momkari's character design itself. Let's talk Ryan. Ryan is best boy. He's Shulk's best friend. He's a giant himbo. His catchphrase is, I've got your back and he means it he is not playing around and i adore it he is wonderful because he's not a jealous best friend character he's not jealous that he that shulk can wield a monado he's straight up like you know what that thing is very scary and it's very pointy and i'm glad you can do it because you're smart and i'm not that very and i'm I'm, I'm i'm not that smart i'm a himbo you touch the scary thing i will protect you and it's like they've been together since childhood, and he seriously doesn't know what he's doing. He just wants to hang out with Shulk and make sure his bro is okay. But the thing is, like, when he says he's got Shulk's back, he means it both in gameplay and in narrative. Like, he's such a good tank character in both senses, which is kind of weird to say. But, like, in gameplay, it's pretty obvious to know what a tank does. But in narrative, he always knows what to say to support Shulk. He cuts through all of his worries and makes sure that he's okay. And anytime anyone tries to verbally harass Shulk, Ryan is there to stand in the way and say, no, I'll take the brunt of this damage. You're wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to defend my friend. And he does it so lovingly. Like he doesn't ever hesitate. Shulk starts having these visions and at the start of the game Ryan's like okay well you're crazy but the moment that he explains what's going on Ryan is like well now I shall defend your sanity and honor anytime anyone questions you and it's so good like it's just a very pure friendship and it's wonderful to not see that competitiveness that is usually played for you know fake drama um and then let's keep talking about Ryan but let's talk about Ryan as a romantic character with Sharla so bless Ryan and Sharla so Here's the deal with Sharla. She's the third party member of the game who like really joins for the bulk of the story. She is a medic from Colony 6 who is a bit older than Ryan and Shulk by a couple of years. She had been leading a camp of refugees after Colony 6 was attacked when you meet her. But when the attack had happened, um, her fiance, Gatto, went to defend Colony 6. So no one knows where Gatto went. Um, so after you meet her, she decides to join the party to try and find him. So Ryan looks and acts a lot like Gatto, according to Sharla, so she quickly develops these, like, strange projected feelings onto him, and Ryan does not cuck Gatto at all. He's like, yo, this girl's got some issues. She's hung up on her fiancé. Big yikes. Let's, like, let's find him and, like, move on. But over the course of the journey, he actually does fall in love with her, and there's really good chemistry between them, and there's sparks, and he NEVER makes a move. Because she needs closure with Gatto, and he respects her space. And then people ask, oh, like, what if, you know, she ends up with him? Aren't you gonna be disappointed? He's like, I don't care, I want her to be happy. And if Gatto makes her happy, like, I'll support it, and I'm gonna help, hi- help her find him. Like, this is a love triangle that's done so well, and then it gets even better when they find Gatto, and it could have been this overdramatic thing of like, let's fight over her and, you know, to see who has claim over her, which is such a disgusting concept in itself, but it's done so often. But instead of treating her like an object, like so many other games do with love triangles, they instead just immediately form the Charlotte Protection Squad, essentially, and they promise silently to ensure that she's happy first and foremost. It's so good, like, they're just bros separated by a decade over, but, you know, united in their affection for this woman. And then, like, once again, spoilers, Gatto dies, but he, like, when when Gatto dies, Ryan does not jump on Sharla right away. In fact, you may never actually get to see them get together. What you actually have to do is help rebuild Colony 6 all the way to, I believe, completion to get the heart-to-heart, that individual conversation that, you know, has them falling in love and has them interacting with one another this way. It's, it's so good because after Colony 6 has been rebuilt and she's feeling more settled, she's like, hey, Ryan, like, stay here, live with us, lead our defense squad. Because he used to work the defense forces back in Colony 9. And so, you know, Ryan says, Well, I guess Shulk doesn't need me to guard his back anymore. He's grown stronger. So, yeah, like, if I can stay with you, I would be really happy. And it's, like, really wonderful and respectful because you know, Shulk straight up asks him in the latter part of the game, like, but what about Sharla? And like, Ryan drinks respect woman juice in this house and he says, I'm not going to do anything until she's ready, she needs time to heal, like she just lost the person she loves and I will never force her to do anything and just like, just bless him, he's just wonderful. And I love that characterization of this guy who, you know, he's not the smartest but he will do anything to protect the people he loves both physically and emotionally in the most respectful way. And it's just wonderful. So the last point of my list is essentially the world itself, thanks to the affinity chart. So the entire world and everyone who lives in it is so flushed out in this game because everyone has their own relationships so other games have always done this in little ways where you know you might talk to an npc in one area and then you talk to someone else far away and they mention this other npc and you can say oh my gosh if you're paying attention you'll know that these two are linked and that's like a fun easter egg almost but in this game they codify that they they expand it and make it a huge part of the game itself by making this whole thing called the affinity chart and essentially it keeps track of every single person who is named that you meet it tracks all of their relationships with one another so if they hate each other if they're in love like if they're family members like whatever if two people have spoken outside of the context of the protagonist like and you learn this information by talking to them like they're it's getting on that chart and you're gonna have this amazing web of connection to show just how unified this world is and how people can you know have connections in the most Um, surprising of ways. And the really cool thing about this chart is that it actually does change depending on the big story concepts. So when looking at big events of the game, such as when the Meconus attacks and the Bionis moves, rendering places inhabitable and whatnot, um, you see people shifting around in order to stay safe. You see some people, they're dead. Like you see people's lives beginning and ending and moving around the world as the story progresses, but it's never because of the protagonists because they're not, you know, the only people who exist in the world and that's really neat to me. It's so easy to become entrenched in the little lives and missions of the people we meet because there's like over 400 side quests or something, but each of them have these little stories that make me so invested. For example, like off the top of my head, there's like this little boy who wants to be an astronomer. So you go on this whole set of missions, meeting people who you know study astronomy, and then meeting people who can make a telescope. And you know, if you if you are well connected, you'll be able to end up getting this little boy this telescope. And then of course the little boy dies, and he gets turned into a telethia, and it makes me cry. But like whatever, that's a different story. I'm not. I it's fine. I'm not hurt by it at all. Um. Or the little One kid who's scared of, of the sounds coming from the basement, but it's actually just like an old man snoring and bitching about his knee pains at night. <laughs> like, this little kid is so scared, and it ends up being this whole like test of courage thing. Um... Or what else is there there's like this whole conflict between you know this group of kids figuring out that racism is bad (laughs) which was actually really cool to see how these kids learn to be more accepting of one another's differences um or we have that older woman in colony nine whose son died on a journey going up through the bionis but um you know she keeps talking about him and people keep saying like he's been dead and you know it's this whole thing where people don't respect her because they think she's lost her mind when in reality she just wants to have some closure so you end up going through the world and if you are if you have a keen eye and if you explore a lot you'll end up finding his three like scattered keepsakes and bringing it to her and giving this old woman some closure about her son who never made it back home and so everything and everyone is connected and like i every time i play it i like spend so much time looking at this damn chart to see okay like how's it going to connect to who um you know what's going to change based on my choices during a quest if i help this person over this person what's going to happen and it's so interesting and even when they were little fetch quests and things i always knew it would open up the way to more of these lovely little stories that would tell me more about the lives of these people um like I don't want to get a million of this item, but if it's going to help someone who you know wants to be a better person or you know is going through a journey of their own, like I'll always do it because I want to help them. I think the most in-depth like stories would probably be the whole smuggling ring, where the Nopon were making drugs <laughs> for the High um for like elite High in alkamoth and so you can like bust the drug ring. And like the whole production line, which is freaking hilarious when you actually realize that he's these tiny little furballs making just real nice cocaine for all of these people. Um, the other one that's really cool that I want to highlight is this whole situation with Shura. She is an archaeologist, I believe. And she is a home who is studying the history of giants and arachnids Because giants and arachnos kind of were like the old races which dominated the bionis and then we can think based on what we understand later about the telethia that probably the telethia killed off all the giants and and the arachnos um but you know she's studying the history of them and you can see um you know throughout the world the mementos of these creatures of these former civilizations and you actually end up seeing you know them after the after the Mechonis and the Bionis move, and you end up getting more access to tougher cave. You can actually go into a place where they've been hidden for you know how God knows how long, millions of years maybe. But it's it's really interesting to see how her research and how her you know coworkers research mingles with the legends that you can hear by just talking to people and getting to know the world. And so when you see the love and the energy put into the story and all of the little little pieces that bring it together, it just brings me so much joy. Because when you look at this, the mechanics really truly support the world and the story. When the Maconus moves, it renders places inaccessible, and you can't fast travel out of places when it's a high stakes situation. You can't just teleport th- teleport inside Alchemoth after the world falls apart. Instead, you can teleport to the entrance, and then you find all of your former Hyentia friends have been transformed into Telethia and you have to kill them. And it's heartbreaking, because some of your Telethia friends who you know, who you were able to save, or who weren't transformed, like one of them, her fiancé is a guard in the palace, and you have to hunt him down. The, the story affects these characters that may just have a few lines but you can see that they have real ramifications and that is so refreshing to see because it, it means that all the little tasks you do have an impact on more than just you and that is so gratifying um, and it really makes you feel like you're a part of this world that matters and not just a part of a protagonist's story. Like, for me, every single time something happens, whenever I play this game, I'm never worried about the protagonist. The power of plot will save them, it's fine. But I'm worried about all of my, my friends, and the people that I've met along the way, and all the little kids I've helped, and all the old people who I've, like, you know, listened to wax philosophical about their lives. Like, I want them to be safe, and I want these beautiful locations to be safe, and I want to be able to visit them again, because I know that this game is so well made that if the story demands that I can't visit them again, like they're gone. And I won't get them back. And to be able to put that much weight on the loss of someone who isn't important to the story goes to show just how much love and care went into it. So yeah, I could probably wax philosophical, like the old people in this story all day on this series, so we will cut it here. Um, I hope you enjoyed this rambling dive into some of my favorite parts of Xenoblade Chronicles 1. If you enjoyed it, let me know! Share this episode with your friends, Um, you know, like it. Leave comments, and if you'd like to see more or you have any ideas for topics, let me know on Tumblr, faultyparagonfiction.tumblr.com, or on Discord at fb 8010 You can also find all of my stories on AO3 and on FFNet under Faulty Paragon. On AO3, there's no space. On FFNet, there is a space between Faulty Paragon it. Thank you so much for joining and I hope you enjoy your week. Thanks for listening.